It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk and joining me. It's Tuesday, and I'm going to have uh, one special guest here for the entire show today. We're going to mix it up a little bit. Uh, I'm even in studio. Usually I'm out on the road, and I'm kind of Skyping into my own show, but today I'm in studio, and Finally got my nice uh, holiday present from our, from our engineer. But um, so, you know, in case this is the first time you happen to be tuning in, if you're you're not a regular to the show, give you a little rundown on on how this works. Uh, for the rest of you, you can uh, maybe uh, get that last email off before we get started. But you know, I, I have the the real privilege of meeting so many uh, inspiring leaders all the time. And sometimes this is through LinkedIn, sometimes it's through a conference, maybe it's a great introduction, whatever it may be. You know, the networks kind of come together, and I get the opportunity to meet someone who has a unique talent and knows something that I don't know. And I love to ask those kinds of people great questions and and figure out a little bit more about them. And so this show is really designed to give you the opportunity to listen to that discussion and for you to learn those things and for you to pick up things that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise heard. And um, and hopefully, you know, learn something you can take away with you and use in your in your company, in your life, in your relationships, whatever it may be. So as I mentioned, Talent Talk is live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're broadcasting today out of the out of Orange County, California, in Costa Mesa. Um, and you can access, though, the show. How most of you actually get us the, you know, after the fact, and that's on iTunes. You can hear us on iHeartRadio um, or even going directly to our website, uh, talenttalkradio.com. So for the last several years, we, we've been averaging, I don't know, about 10,000 people a day that are downloading a podcast, and that kind of translates into millions over time. So really appreciate the the great audience that we've really developed and so many of you coming back. Um, and one of our favorite things is to get questions and and feedback and continue the conversation. Um, and we do that on Twitter. So uh, there really isn't a better place to do this kind of conversation. So if you're on Twitter, we'd love to have you send us a question, a comment, uh, say hello, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, follow the live uh, uh, tweeting and live streaming that our producer Mike does while the show is live. But if you want to get in on that, you can just send your question to at people G2, add the hashtag talent talk. He's, he's monitoring that now. Or if we see it after the fact, if you're hearing us later on after the live show, we're happy to continue that conversation. So I did mention we have one guest today, a pretty uh, a titan of the titan of the HR world, uh, Danny uh, Coleman. He's the talent uh, manager professional and the managing d- director of uh, Tandy Kelman. He's also been with um, uh, Panasonic for, for many, many years, um, the global head of talent over there. So uh, we'll bring him in, and I'll let him kind of give you the proper introduction of everything he's doing. But Danny, uh, good to hear from you again, and welcome to the show. Okay, thanks very much, Chris. 
All right. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, your, your, your journey here to, to HR and where you are today? Okay. Well, first of all, thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to uh, talk to you and, and share some of my experiences with your listeners. Um, yeah, so I'm phoning in or Skyping in from London, where I live. Originally, I'm from the north of England, so I guess um, it's going to be a little colder here than it is where you guys are at the moment. But I hear there's a bit of snow on the East Coast. Yeah, the East Coast is getting it bad, and we're getting a heat wave, which is about right. So anytime we can, Californians can rub it in about our great weather to anybody else, we do it. Okay. So, you know, I'm... Um, Delighted to be able to, you know, first of all, share a little bit about my career, my background. I started off in actually in retailing, in, in commercial management. And before going coming into HR, I was in marketing. And, you know, in my experience, Chris, this has been a, an, an important experience for me because uh, the fact that I'd worked in commercial management in a retailing organization and marketing, it meant when most of my career has been in HR, but I genuinely believe for HR to be effective and to really be successful, they really need to have a commercial mind and they need they need to understand the business they're in and, you know, what's the vision and the direction of the business. So I think one of the reasons why I've been successful in my HR career is because of my commercial background. Right. So sort of understanding the business, understanding what people are having to do on a regular basis, um, I, I think. Working in retail gives you a lot of uh, empathy to, to people's struggles with <laughs> maybe um, poor company culture or, uh, you know, kind of overbearing rules and procedures and things. And so it's fascinating to hear you say that that kind of had a real impact on you know, those experiences on, your, on where you ended up in, in HR. It, sure. that, that kind of summarized that correctly? Yeah. And in fact, I remember um, when I worked in... Uh, when I get, came into HR, uh, the MD told me at the time he had fired uh, two previous HR people because they knew nothing about the business, had no interest in the products that the company was selling. And uh, he shifted me over from marketing into HR because he felt I was a people person and, uh, and a good combination of knowing the business as well. Well, you're not the first person to mention that they have come from sales or marketing and found their way into HR. I mean, it has been, a, I would say, the last uh, 10 or 12 shows we've had. This has come up a few times. And it's fascinating that for me to, for the, maybe those CEOs to, to realize that uh, potential there in those people. But, you know, if you, a lot of what HR has to do is market, right? It might be to, to, <laughs> to get people to do the things they need to do or to buy in on the culture or buy in on the benefits plan or whatever it may be. So let's maybe start with the marketing part. How, how did that, that experience and that training really help you with the HR component? Because, you know, I think when you're in HR, you're marketing the company by, for example, when you're recruiting people, you know, recruiting is a two-way street, um, you've got to sell the company as much as they've got to sell themselves to the company. And, you know, when good applicants, they're going to have a choice. And they, you know, they may have two or three other organizations they can go for. But if you've really sold the company or if you like marketed it during the recruitment process, you know, to me, that's key. And, and then also retaining people. And, and by people actually feeling they have opportunities within the company, again, linked to marketing, 
Uh, I, th I think that's absolutely key, and that's the reason why I'm passionate about HR people really having a, a commercial mindset and understanding that their, their role uh, in terms of both marketing the company and, of course, internally marketing themselves. So do you think maybe HR departments and uh, you know anyone who's sort of working in and around HR might be better off rephrasing their uh, – we always talk about communication, right? It's better be better communicate communicators communicate more with your your employees or but i wonder if what they need to do is be better marketers right it's not just about just getting rid of this information it's not just about telling people but it's about telling them in an effective way in a way they'll retain a way that they'll resonate with so it, it, would that be good advice to hr people who start thinking about their interactions more in a marketing uh, context i believe so and um you know, certainly when it comes to for example a lot of uh, hr people need to often communicate about the organization that may be selling the company in some uh, university, maybe in some business school, in maybe talks they're doing at schools. And, you know, communicating in, in a way that they're showing their passion, they're showing their enthusiasm, and also really talking about the company in terms of what the organization can offer. And I think they're all qualities are key to uh, HR people. So uh, I know after a, a great corporate career that you've had, and you run a global leadership program. So uh, I'm going to kind of have some of your messages, maybe depending upon what your type of conference you're in or what you're speaking to. But you know, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to underlying messages that you want leaders to hear, to understand, for them to know, um, to become more effective, um, how do they do that? How do they become more effective than in their own personal leadership? What are some of the things you're talking about? Well, you know, I um, had some wonderful experiences during my 21 years with Panasonic. You know, I joined there in 92, uh, 1992, and I left in 2012. And I, I think later I'll talk a little bit about my experiences working, um, if you like, in Japanese culture and environment. But both within Panasonic and, and, and since leaving, you know, I've often uh, given talks at conferences and uh, leadership seminars still. And yes, yes, I often talk about leaders need to be inspiring and need to share their vision, need to uh, have integrity and credibility. But Chris, if I had to pick up one word or one kind of, uh, if you like, um, uh, feature of a leadership or quality of a good leader is having curiosity and what do I mean by that is is really kind of asking the kind of questions getting gathering all the relevant information and there's a wonderful Japanese word I'd like to share with you and your listeners it's called having a sunao mind and uh, it basically means being open-minded and in fact the founder of Panasonic often talked about uh, sunao mind leadership and if a leader is prepared to kind of gather information, to be challenged, to be curious. I think that's one of the strongest attributes a leader needs, certainly in my experience. Well, it's a fascinating term. I'm, now I'm just kind of taking notes because I'm wanting to go back and, and learn more about that. But um, maybe you could expand a little bit on, on how, how does someone really take that into play? How, how did Panasonic maybe put that into play, into taking that kind of a mindset uh, a bit further? I mean, are there, are there practical sure. things you can do? Are there uh, developmental things for teams? How does that work? Well, you know, I think, first of all, it's a mindset. And to be able to 
understand what does it mean to have a Sunau mind and to be open-minded. And one of the um, previous presidents of Panasonic had this wonderful saying, and he used to say, start anew every day. Anew being A-N-E-W. And what he meant by that is sometimes uh, we all face difficult days, challenging days at work. And to try to get rid of the baggage and all the aggravation, and you come in the following morning and you look at things with a new perspective, with a fresh view, rather than being influenced what's happened, you know, the day before, which kind of gave you uh, some, some bad feelings or negativity. And so he would say, and he would, and this came very much from the top, to saying, look at things with, with a fresh view. And, and this is very relevant and very happy to expand on this when you look at talent because we all um, have fixed views of when we meet people for the first time when we look at people in our organisations and if we're looking at people with this Sunau mind it means that you're looking wow, you're looking at them as people not how long they've been working in the company not the kind of reports you may have had from others looking with a fresh perspective and I think that can be very powerful So uh, we've kind of began to to peel back the onion here of your time at Panasonic, and it might be interesting for our listeners to know that you're the first non-Japanese HR director. How was it to step into that role, both from a personal and and cultural standpoint? Well, first of all, it was a great honor that I was uh, selected uh, to be my my first uh, 10 years or maybe nine years in Panasonic. I had three Japanese bosses. And then uh, finally, my third Japanese boss recommended me to take over and to be his successor. And one thing is for sure, and, and, and I guess it's a little bit linked to Japanese culture, but not exclusively, is I think you've got to establish your credibility over a period of time. And certainly, as I'm sure you know, Chris, the Japanese do tend to take a long-term view uh, of careers and of people. So having established uh, what I've done or what I can achieve, then uh, the the authorization or there's a lovely Japan, Japanese word kesai, the authorization for my uh, appointment as um, uh, as HR director for the European region, I'm sure came from the headquarters in Japan as much as the European management. So yeah, it was a great honour, and um, it gave me. Uh, opportunities to really uh, focus on where my most my biggest passion is in HR which is around talent management and learning and development so then you know as you kind of have this exciting role and you're I'm sure there's a lot of great things that were uh, going on you mentioned it being an honor but what were some of the challenges you faced on this sort of global platform in the area of HR and 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 were they difficult to overcome or are you able to find you know solutions easily uh, not easily at all, no. <laughs> and, you know, first of all, when I was a HR director for the European region, um, when you talk about uh, working in a cultural environment, you know, I think sometimes you tend to think only from a Japanese viewpoint. But as you know very well, uh, Europe is kind of a, a mixture of many different countries and cultures. So even within the European region, I, I had to really uh, understand uh, you know, for even basic things like un- un- understanding the difference between countries in the northern Europe to, say, the southern part of Europe around decision making, around meeting style. The, for example, northern Europe, especially German people, are much more formal. 
uh, quite similar to Japanese, whereas you get to Italy, France, Spain, very informal. So really, it's kind of working within the different cultures, both within the European context as well as a Japanese one. Well, we're having fun here talking to Danny Coleman when uh, kind of picking his brain on everything uh, HR and his career. We're going to probably hit our first uh, commercial break here, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Danny after this quick commercial break. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that PeopleG2 offers something different. At PeopleG2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, PeopleG2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Town Talk Radio Show. If you're just uh, picking up with us, uh, my guest today is uh, Danny Kalman. He's the talent management professional who's helped uh, guide human resources on a global level through his previous positions, uh, Panasonic being one of them, and now helps companies implement them in a more strategic uh, and systematic way uh, to really help their talent management strategies. Uh, don't forget you can visit talenttalkradio.com uh, to listen to past episodes, and also iTunes or iHeartRadio can find our podcasts uh, and radio shows there. All right, Danny, we're back, and um, we're curious to know, uh, you know your main interest and passion was, in the, as far as I understand, the identification development of future leaders within kind of that European region. Um, how did you implement a leadership development program with such a, you know, a broad uh, area, keeping in mind the many different cultural differences and things that you started to allude to? So how, how does one, I guess, really make that happen? A pan-European point of view. Uh, the first key point is I had the support of top leadership, uh, and that meant in terms of having a budget to run programs. Because uh, they could see the the value uh, and w- the impact it was going to have within the European region, so having got the buy-in um, uh, from the managing director of Europe, and that continued over the eight or nine years as responsible for the European region in HR, I then put a number of different kind of programs, and also established a coaching culture. Um, so really looking at both, if you like, the traditional classroom style training but brought in certain other dimensions, which I'll be happy to share with you. But underpinning that was this kind of culture of coaching, both bringing in some external coaching, but also developing the coaching skills within line management as well. Yeah, and you mentioned there was a bit more there, so please, I'd love to learn more. Sure. So let me just give you a couple of uh, different uh, examples of the programs that we we, uh, introduced at that time. We, we work closely with uh, the, a, a famous business school, certainly from a European point of view, called IMD uh, in Lausanne in Switzerland. And they established uh, a Panasonic executive seminar using their different uh, professors there. 
and that really was at the very top level of the European management. And a lot of there uh, was around case studies, and with the professors introducing different case studies, case studies relevant to Panasonic in terms of maybe competitors or, or, or similar markets. And certainly that was at the at what we call the executive level. But beneath that, we also developed a program called Driving Personal Effectiveness, a DPE. And Driving Personal Effectiveness was really looking at the leadership style. And naturally, who, what kind of person were they? What were their preferences? What were their strengths? And really understanding themselves and understanding really uh, how, how to be more impactful or effective as a leader. But I guess, Chris, the programme I felt the proudest was a programme that, uh, together with the team, we introduced something called Talent for Tomorrow. And that was the first time in Panasonic history, I think, where people could self-nominate. They could raise their hand and say, I want to be part of this programme. And these are the reasons why I want to be part of it. And it was a two-year programme. It was pan-European. And at the end of it, there was a very good opportunities and a very good chance that people would receive the next steps in their careers. Well, that sounds uh, fascinating. Now, I'm curious, when you started talking about the things that you were doing there uh, with that university in Switzerland, is I wondered how different or how similar were the these types of leadership programs that you were doing and overseeing compared to maybe your Japanese counterparts or other places in the globe? Okay, so one of the uh, initiatives uh, that we took at that time, Chris, was to in- invite the Japanese expatriates to these programs. And there was a lovely... St- May I tell you a quick story? Have I got time to Please, do that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so there was... Uh, I remember there's one uh, program I w- wanted to introduce on a team-building course uh, for a, a particular part of Panasonic. And I knew the Japanese manager in particular I wanted to invite would refuse to say he was too busy. So using a little bit of what I then sometimes call political intelligence, I went to speak to his boss, the Japanese boss of this particular guy, and explained about the course and the objectives and what would be the benefits. So, And he, he totally bought into it. So when I went to speak to his subordinate Japanese guy, and he said, and I said to him, I call him Mr. Suzuki for the, for the point of this exercise. I said, Suzuki-san, uh, I'd like to join, ask you to join this program. He said, oh, thank you very much, Danny, but I'm too busy and, you know, I, I really haven't got the time, etc. But as soon as I said I'd spoken to his boss and his boss fully agreed for him to join the program, he had no choice. So uh, he then joined the program and, in fact, the team-building exercise was really targeted at bringing together the different cultures of the Japanese and, and, the, and the European staff. So sometimes it's understanding how to, I call it again political intelligence, how to get people to join these kind of programs, making sure their bosses are on board, and, and really that, uh, that was very effective. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, you know, it's amazing how sometimes you have to go to those extremes when you you know that the person's going to, it's going to be a great fit. You know that this is going to be a great thing for them and for the team and everyone else, and yet maybe they're a little resistant. And so, uh, I guess that's a that's a pretty it's a pretty important part about what HR does, but we don't always think about it. Is how how do you maybe work the system a little bit, be a little political, whatever it may be, because you're trying to do something that's ultimately very good for the company, the team, that person overall, um, and, and they, maybe they just 
yeah, that's one of the frustrations I think and a lot of HR people have is getting people to do those things to help them with their careers, to help them get better. They get too bogged down and being too busy doing what they're doing and not realizing that maybe what you're doing is ineffective and you're wasting time and you could learn this better way to do something. Um, so, is that something you, you, you've, you've seen a lot of or was that an isolated case? No, I've seen a lot of that and um, and certainly working with both the European culture and, and, um, and within the Japanese context as well. And, you know, it's kind of Sometimes it's getting executives away from their operational day-to-day stuff, getting them out of the office into an environment, a learning environment, getting them to in a situation whereby they can, you know, turn off their emails and really try to focus on and to be challenged. But one of the other um, kind of uh, frustrations sometimes, Chris, or indeed a challenge, was as HR people, you've got to recognize, in my experience, that not everybody learns the right, the same way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll talk about this a little bit later in terms of um, diversity and management. But from a different generational point of view, everybody has different kind of preferences in terms of where they learn, whether it's classroom style, whether it's kind of through the Internet or what have you. But the other thing is cultural awareness in terms of language. And one of the things I certainly had to adapt is when I was giving lectures and seminars, certainly in Japan and to a lesser extent in Europe, you know, the typical Anglo-Saxon style is you talk the same way, usually quite fast, using lots of jargon, etc. And the understanding of people whose English is not their first language is they don't get so much of the material and so much of the nuances of what you're trying to say. So what I learned is when I communicate globally, I speak slowly, I choose my words carefully, and I continuously check their understanding. So it's, again, from a cultural point of view, it's being aware of who your, who you, who your audience is. Well, that's great advice um, to remember who your audience is, making those changes. I mean, certainly there's a lot of things you can do. If, uh, from a global perspective, I, I remember someone coaching me one time at in, uh, in in going over my first time for business, uh, going over to England, you know, I was warned very heavily not to use my sports analogies, which I was, you know, very, um, I, I would do if I was really trying to get someone to understand something. And so uh, our, our sports analogies may not necessarily transfer over, over there, despite us all speaking, you know, English. So um, you have to really think about um, who, who you're dealing with and how you're going to do that and, and what's going to be the best way. I think that's great advice uh, you've given. Sure. And w- w- one, of the quick, one of the quick point there, Chris, as well, is that I also discovered that some cultures are more open to ask questions, to interrupt, to challenge. And certainly Americans, uh, Brits, Australians... Uh, people generally, again, English is their first language, but certainly some Europeans who are very confident in English. But you came to the Asian culture, and again, uh, especially working in Japan, if I was running a program and I said, does anybody have any questions, I can almost guarantee you that not one Japanese would raise their hand to ask a question. Because historically and culturally, they've been kind of educated not to challenge the teacher, to accept everything that they learnt at school, etc. So again, a technique I learnt uh, over the years was if I asked them directly, and again using this, the, the common name Suzuki, and if I said to Suzuki-san, what do you think? He would feel, he would give me a great answer, and he would be happy because I've picked on him, and I've given him, or I've invited him to speak, 
and he feels kind of honoured that the mm. teacher or the professor or, or the instructor has gone to him directly. And again, that was a technique I learned. You ask them directly, they will respond and they'll be happy to respond. You ask them generally, no chance. Well, and yeah, that's... Uh it's such a small tweak, right? You're just you're just being slightly more effective. You're making a, the smallest adjustment in, in what you're doing, and yet you're being highly, uh, highly more effective. And I think that's the big importance about leadership development, about training, about all these different things that um, our staffs may be able to do or take advantage of. That that small adjustment can have such a huge impact into everything you're doing. We're not we're not asking people to go back and relearn a new alphabet or a new language or something of, of <laughs> monumental, you know, task. We're asking for small adjustments that make, you know, big differences. Um, are, are there other examples like that where you can think of but maybe those, you know, a, a, a simple solution could solve a large problem when you were talking about leadership development? Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, just, just one very briefly is, is the fact that... Um, really to always try to find some kind of common understanding and to try so and and really understand the nuances of and let me just give you very one quick example so i was running a program in europe and we talked about meeting style and um and a guy from panasonic in germany said oh in germany all the meetings are very well organized exactly one hour this is the agenda please read these documents before the meeting this is what we're trying to achieve it's in meeting room two and would you like coffee or tea and the italian guy who was in the same meeting was laughing and i said why are you laughing he said I can't believe that meeting style because in Italy we get a, normally a phone call five minutes before the meeting saying, can you join the meeting? What's the subject? Oh, we're not yet decided. We'll, we'll discuss it at the meeting. And everybody's talking on their mobile phones. Everybody's talking with their hands and being very emotional. And normally there's no conclusion and nobody's got really any idea what the meeting was about. So it's a bit of a broad generalisation, but really, again, understanding when you're running programmes and seminars that people are coming from so many different backgrounds. So one of the ways that you and I got connected, and I'm so glad that we did, was around your book uh, that you wrote, uh, co-authored, um, called, uh, it really centers around global talent management. It's titled, uh, Make Your People um, Before You Make Your Products. So the name is a, a pretty good giveaway, but can you share a little bit about your book, uh, the premise, sure. what you're trying to, hoping the readers will take away from it? Okay, just very quickly, Chris, uh, the title um, came from a very uh, famous story of when the founder of Panasonic, Kanesuke Matsushita, and uh, I understand I wasn't there, but this is a true story in the 1930s. He was visiting uh, one of his 33 factories at the time, and he said to the general manager of the factory, what do you make in your factory? And, and the manager said, well, you know, he was a bit surprised that the founder was there. So we make radios, uh, Mr. Matsushita. And he asked him a second time, no, 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 what do you make in your factory? And he thought maybe he didn't hear me, so he shouted, we make radios, Mr. Matsushita. <laughs> and when the founder asked him a third time, he, he realized he couldn't say radios again. So he, he quickly thought, he said, I'm not sure what we make in our factory. And the founder of Panasonic said, you make people, because without people, you've got no product. And so when I tell that story, I'm a great storyteller, when I tell that story to my co-author, somewhere in a pub in the centre of London. He, he had the light bulb moment. He said, Danny, that's the title of our book. So, that, so that's a little background to the title. And really what we've tried, the main themes of the book, was really on the premise that everyone's got talent. 
and how to leverage, how to identify the talent in your organization. And uh, very much our research showed that many organizations had a very kind of exclusive approach to talent. What do I mean by that is they would identify 5% of the workforce, call them high potentials or, you know, uh, uh, quick movers or what have you, uh, fast stream, and they would dedicate all their energies, all their resources, all their investment into this 5%, which meant that you really disenfranchised the other 95% of the workforce. So that was quite commonplace in so many organizations. So that was one of the main themes of the book, to say, look, there's talent everywhere within your company. doesn't mean to say you have to be a manager or a leader to be talented and, and uh, try to identify the talent that's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's uh, it's a great story, um, about, you know, developing your people first. And so many organizations do sort of focus on it always seems like they're focused on the top and then sometimes the very bottom, right? And then what's, what's left for the middle? What's left for everybody else who's not an A-plus performer or who's not failing? <laughs> mm-hmm. And is that just to, to survive? Is it to just to, to exist or do we do more? And it feels like the best cultures out there um, have something for everyone. That They are working with all of their different groups and at all different levels at different times um, because – yeah, there may be a couple people who are typically always at the top, but I've noticed in my experience that there are people who are at the top at a particular time in their lives, and there are other times in which they drop down, and then they come back up. Um, and those are for lots of different reasons, training, personal problems, whatever it may be. And so uh, do, do you kind of get any of that about how to help that, that middle group at all? So, the, yeah, we did. And what we did, we bought a, a model. Uh, in the book, uh, um, and how we kind of explained it, we said talent uh, 1.0 is very much historically around succession planning. You know, who are going to be your future successors, particularly of your next uh, C-suite uh, positions. Talent 2.0 tended to focus on kind of CEOs and uh, executives, and many organizations were kind of stuck there. And then it went to Talent 3.0, where you started really developing and identifying your high potentials and your specialists. But what we try to say in the book is where we are today is where most organizations are striving for is Talent 4.0, which is multi-generational, multicultural, and understanding that in different generations, people have different expectations. And how we define that is in the first talent 1.0, see, talent is kind of an audience. And what I mean by that is that kind of people were tapped on the shoulder and said, we'd like you to go on this program, we'd like to go on this course. And they were looking in. And what we said in the book, in talent 4.0, talent is part of a community. And the community is they want to work with other talented people, they want to feel there's a sense of being valued and appreciated. And, you know, to... To develop your career does not mean to say that you're going on business school programs or, or, or kind of leadership seminars. It means that there could be lots of development going on on the job training, recognizing there's other rotations, there's other responsibilities they can have. And so, therefore, the, the learning and the development takes place throughout the whole of your career and not just when you're at the top or at the very bottom. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's... It- if people can really implement those things, and sometimes we hear the word succession planning, we hear some of these bigger words, 
And if you're the you're the company that has that kind of structure and size and uh, ability, those things make sense. I mean, sometimes for maybe a smaller company, more nimble company, maybe those aren't things they necessarily are thinking about or even can think about. You know, if an organization isn't a global company, if they don't have, you know, more than ten or twenty thousand employees, are, are there some things that they could think about doing that are maybe at their own level uh, that may apply from some of the things that you talked about in that book? Yes, you know, I, I think that there's, if you look at generational, uh, different people from different generations in the organization, this kind of notion that, you know, maybe from um, d- older generations, there was this kind of mindset that you're going to stay with the same organization over many, many years. And uh, I think in a small organization, there may not be the kind of career opportunities you could get in a global company. And even in this kind of smaller uh, parts of Panasonic, we recognize that, you know, the career could be for two to three years within Panasonic. And I had an example, Chris, when a, a young guy, 25, 26, he'd been in Panasonic two or three years, and he'd been kind of approached by... Uh, another organization, um, I think at the time it was Apple, and um, he joined, he, he came to me and said, Danny, you know, I'm, I'm liking to work in Panasonic, but, you know, I had this wonderful opportunity. And that's going to happen from time to time. So I think it's important that organizations realize they're not going to be able to hang on and retain all their talents for years after years. And some people, maybe the best thing for them to do at that particular time is to leave and go to another organization. And as long as you leave on good terms, I've had many experiences and examples when people have actually come back into Panasonic having seen, uh, having worked for a different organization. And that's been a win-win situation. Yeah, I've I started to hear people talking about this uh, maybe idea of tour of duty, right? Instead of asking someone to come in and having pretending that we expect them to stay with you forever or... Right. Uh, almost obligated to that. That let's just be honest about it. Hey, we, we, we're hoping you're going to come in here for two or three years, do this job, and then you can re up if, if there's the next opportunity. And great. If not, then you may move on. We understand, and yeah, it, it can really change the the conversation. Um, instead of everyone pretending that we expect them to be forty, fifty, sixty year employees, whatever that number may be, which doesn't, and, I, I don't know. If you, and if you've got them for two or three years, that could be two or three years quality time. Mm-hmm. And they, within that period, they can make a significant contribution. And if they move on, okay. Right, right. Well, we're going to take our last commercial break here, and then we're going to come back and talk about your latest book, which I've read and really enjoy. Um, and we'll, we'll do that after uh, this uh, quick commercial break. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support 
has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. All right, we're back with uh, Danny Kalman, uh, K-A-L-M-A-N, in case you want to look him up. Um, and I mentioned right before we went to commercial break, his latest book, uh, which I read and really enjoyed, um, Inclusive Talent Management, How Business Can Thrive in an Age of Diversity. Can you talk us through the book? What, what, what should someone get from this book if they were to read it from cover to cover? What would you hope that they would take away and understand? Chris, uh, with a guy called Steve Frost as my co-author, and Steve's background is diversity and inclusion. And in fact, um, he was head of uh, diversity and inclusion for London Olympics and wrote a book, um, his first book, which is very much about how and why London became the, f- the most diverse Olympic and Paralympic Games in history. My background, as you know, is talent. And I represented at that time Panasonic on, on a committee that Steve had established uh, for London Olympics and Panasonic at that time being a major sponsor. And so we, we hooked up together um, to write this book and we were both very much... He challenged me to begin with and, and he said to me, Danny, to what extent do you think people in leadership and people or HR people really get diversity and inclusion? And I said, you know, how honest do you want me to be? And he said, of course, be open with me. And I said, hardly at all, because I think most people in the management role and HR see diversity and inclusion as kind of a, a good thing to do or sometimes a, a good thing to do from a societal point of view. But that's all. So what we wanted to do was really put a, a case together to demonstrate and to really articulate why we believe diversity inclusion is is a business imperative and shifting the bar from a very homogenous talent management to, if you like, a very inclusive talent management. And one short piece of insight was that of the research we did in so many organisations, and I'm not sure, you know, uh, with you guys in the States, in so many organisations in Europe, the talent function and the diversity function were too separated often reporting different reporting lines or different parts of the organization and yet we believe passionately you know that diversity is all about talent and talent is is diverse and so that was the starting point yeah and and there's a lot of really interesting concepts i know uh, one of the ones that i enjoyed learning about was i think it's called the the hands up culture which i I'm, hope i'm remembering that correctly but maybe can you talk a little bit about what that is i think it's important for people to maybe one of the fascinating things you kind of talk about well, we, we picked up a number of kind of uh, themes, and one of the, I mean, a lot of it is around the bias and prejudices that we all have, and and of course there will there are many different uh, types of bias uh, that are there, and we talk about them in the book, and uh, and in fact, some really interesting research that ninety eight percent of all our decision making is through unconscious bias, and the way we look at things through a different lens. And this kind of hands-up culture is, is just just one of the things that we talk about, is that 
you know, in so many organisations that people who tend to be more confident, people sometimes, if you, if you like, more extrovert, or people who are happy to raise their hands, they're the people that get noticed. And, and often that could lead to opportunities for them, whether it's promotion or, or other kind of um, uh, positions in the organisation. And so what we try to do is pick up different parts of what we mean by diversity. And so, you know, the starting point quite often diversity is about gender. And yes, a lot of organisations and companies are promoting women in leadership, women in management through shadowing, through coaching, through certain seminars, etc. But diversity is so much more than just gender, Chris. And, you know, we talk in the book very much of generational diversity, you know, ethnicity, LGBT. Um, and But we also then switch the argument to diversity of thinking and what that brings to different organizations. Yeah, and I love that context because for me that's the ultimate place of where diversity goes is that are we as a company stuck in hiring people who just think like we do, right? Because it's safe, because what we know is what we're comfortable with. I think there's some maybe natural tendency, right? Oh, you went to the school I went to, you lived a block from where I grew up, you, you, know, you try to find some connection with somebody um, and you end up getting someone similar to everyone else you already have in your company. And that that seems to not really yield us the, uh, the opportunity to bring in new thoughts, new ideas, new perspectives, and new ways of operating that will help the company continue to grow um, by, by having those differences in, in, in thinking. So, so let me share with you... Uh, um a quick uh, kind of example I give when I give le- lectures and talks. And it's about having your in-group and your out-group. So what I say um, at that particular time is if you picture the, your five closest friends and, uh, you know, who they are, if you picture their faces, and then if you think of your three to five closest colleagues at work, then we say think of your partner or think of the community that you live in. And you draw a circle around uh, all those groups. That's your in-group. And that's where, you're, that's where you frame your decision-making. And that's the kind of lens that you look at when you're looking at different views. And the challenge is, what are we doing to our inv- invite people from an out-group who are not in this inner circle into our organisations or into our lives in terms of the decision-making, the way we look at things? So that's one of the challenges that we like to make, and we've got examples in the book or throughout the book where we, we've referenced or met up with about 67 organisations from you know from the public sector, private sector, the charity sector, and just looking at where they are on their journey in terms of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you're able to kind of shine some light on that. Um, you know, I had the privilege... Uh, a couple weeks ago to be in Boston and become a certified scrum master and was really, really excited about one of the things they mentioned that made a great scrum master was that they could take what they were hearing from the group and make sure that they weren't um, only repeating the things from those who were the loudest and those who were the most charismatic. Um, Because I think very often we... It's so much easier, right, to hear what those people have to say. And they may have great things to say, um, or else they wouldn't have gotten in the habit of being loud or charismatic. Um, but to hear what our just our introverts are, 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 are not saying, yeah. what, they, you know, what, what is it the, that everyone's really hear, saying or what are really feeling, and how do we implement that going forward? Uh, just, just 
looking at it from that perspective, not not gender, not um, not race, not any other category we get put into, but just looking at it from a who's talking the loudest and who's not, right? Sure. By the way, I have no idea what a Scrum Master is. Oh, well, so Scrum is a, a, a project uh, program. Agile is another word for it. Uh, if you ever heard of that, but it's a tool that was built for software development, but now people are taking that process and putting it into their project management. And so it's a completely different way to work. It's really fascinating. I can, okay. I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you something on it later on, but <laughs> okay. thank you. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I mean, um, within diversity, I've mentioned generational and ethnicity, etc., uh, and gender. But, you know, there's certain other parts of diversity is around introversion, extroversion. We talked about hands-up culture. I mean, there's a lovely story of uh, one of the MDs that we um, interviewed for the book. And um, when she became uh, MD of this uh, accounting company, she recognized it was always the same people that were asking questions, that were kind of uh, sticking their hands up or or kind of uh, being noticed. So what she what she introduced was an internal kind of intranet where everybody could raise issues, ask questions, give ideas, share their thoughts and opinions through the internet. And what that did, that totally increased the numbers of people who were coming up with these kind often original and creative thoughts and opinions that in normal circumstances they wouldn't have raised their head above the parapet if you like so it's again recognizing from diversity it's how to be inclusive and one of the hashtags that we use is you know diversity is reality inclusion is a choice you know because we're surrounded by diversity it's there it's everywhere within the organization but the choice is how to whether you want to be inclusive or not and one of the ways to be inclusive is listening to the voices of everybody absolutely well we have time here for two quick questions i want to make sure we squeeze them in here before we go um and that is the first one is what are you reading right now can you tell us about it sure well i'm reading uh, a book uh by uh an american professor called adam grant i don't know if you i do yeah absolutely Okay, his book called Originals, uh, which uh, I think has came out fairly recently, How Nonconformists Change the World. And um, are you familiar with that book, Chris? I am. It's a show favorite. That and his other book, uh, Give and Take, are ones that come up quite often. We love those. Okay. So I, um, it recently won the Management Book of the Year here in the UK, I was a bit uh, sick about that because our book was also a contender for that <laughs> award. But anyhow. Um, you had an uphill battle against Adam Grant. so <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So I didn't feel too bad. And having kind of um, – I've nearly finished reading the book. And actually, which is in some respect very nice and almost flattering, is that Adam's uh, picked up some of the themes that Steve Frost and I have raised in the book as well. And, and just to give you one example, Chris, was around this kind of groupthink, which I think you were talking about before. Because mm-hmm. if you have all people in the organization thinking the same way, uh, afraid to challenge, risk-averse, etc. And he gave some wonderful examples with, you remember the Polaroid camera that um, we'll used to have and instant right. photographs through these kind of chemical solutions? 
And, you know, Pol- Polaroid uh, founder Edwin Land was actually approached by the founder of Panas- uh, Sony, I think it was in 1980, a guy called uh, Morita. And uh, he said to him that, uh, look, I, I think the future technology in, in, in camera isn't necessarily going to be down the route Polaroid have, but it's going to be around much more digital technology. And um, it, the founder of Pan- uh, Polaroid actually rejected that, thinking how could good quality photographs come from as a result of digitalization? So he rejected that opportunity. And... Uh, we can we know you can see the result of that another similar organization another american company that lost its way in a similar fashion was kodak of course as well not recognizing that and of course uh, could see the impact of um, um you know apple if you like another uh, coming with the, with the uh, camera phones uh, etc so I think um, Adam Grant kind of picked up some wonderful examples and, and, and also he picked up some uh, situations where some kind of new inventions like the Segway, you know, like the motorized scooter. Right. And um, there's a lot of um, excitement about that. And even Steve Jobs at that time uh, and I think Jeff Bezos from Amazon all invested in the Segway. And in fact, it never really achieved that success. And what Adam Grant was saying is that you can get carried away by being emotionally attracted or seduced by certain products. But if you don't really understand or you don't have a background in the industry, uh, then you can make these kind of wrong decisions. So the book is full of great examples and of, you know, and, and to, to kind of have new ideas and to be creative isn't restricted to one or two people. Everybody could do it. And I, I thought it was a great theme of the book. Yeah, it really is. Well, we're nearly out of time here. I want to make sure we uh, ask you, how can people find your book? How can they learn more about you? What's the best place for them to go and look and find you on uh, on the Internet? Look, I'll be great. Uh, it'd be wonderful to be um, for people to contact me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn uh, under Danny Kalman. I'm, um, uh, the book itself is called Inclusive Talent Management, uh, it's available either on Amazon or the publisher's website, Kogan Page. Um, and if anybody wants to send me an email directly, uh, it's very simple. It's danny at dannycalman.com. Um, and so if anybody or if anybody wants to contact you directly, Chris, I know you have all my contact details as well. Fantastic. And just as a reminder, his last name is spelled K-A-L-M-A-N. In case any of you... Uh aren't, aren't uh, completely able to always understand everything our friends uh, across the pond uh, are saying, <laughs> just in case. All right, well, Danny, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I know I've always really enjoyed it, uh, our time in talking and having you on the show. It's just the, the cherry on top. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Okay, thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed it, and time's flown by. It absolutely has. It always does. So uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Hopefully you've gained something that will help your own career in a positive way. Next week, my guest will be uh, Gail Gardner, the small business marketing strategist of GrowMap.com, and then Sarah Christensen, president and CEO of Ideation Consulting. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.